Hey, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome. I'm happy to have you regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales Podcast stands in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of the show, as well as links to institutions fighting for reproductive justice, can all be found in the show notes. I'm really excited to announce that the Colin Malatrap Museum of Curious Oddities and Strange Antiquities is in the process of recording its final stories. Hopefully in the next month or so, the audiobook will be available for everyone to purchase and download and listen to to their heart's content. I'm really proud of this book, and I'm really happy with how it turned out, and I know you'll love it too. Dark Horse Road and other stories will also be making its debut hopefully before the end of the year. A Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad by M.R. James. I suppose you'll be getting away pretty soon now full terms over, Professor, said a person not in the story to the Professor of Ontography soon after they had sat down next to each other at a feast in the hospitable hall of St. James College. The Professor was young, neat, and precise in speech. Yes, he said, my friends have been making me take up golf this term, and I mean to go to the East Coast, in point of fact to Burnstow, I dare say you know it, for a week or ten days to improve my game. I hope to get off tomorrow. Oh, Parkins, said his neighbor on the other side, if you're going to Burnstow, I wish you would look at the site of the Templar's Preceptory, and let me know if you think it would be any good to have a dig there in the summer. It was, as you might suppose, a person of antiquarian pursuits who said this, but since he merely appears in this prologue, there is no need to give his entitlements. "'Certainly,' said Parkins, the professor. "'If you will describe to me whereabouts the site is, "'I will do my best to give you an idea of the lie of the land when I get back. "'Or I could write to you about it if you would tell me where you are likely to be.' "'Oh, don't trouble to do that, thanks. "'It's only that I'm thinking of taking my family in that direction in the long. "'And it occurred to me that as very few of the English preceptories have ever been properly planned, "'I might have an opportunity of doing something useful on off days.' "'The professor rather sniffed at the idea that planning out a preceptory could be described as useful.' His neighbor continued. The site, I doubt if there's anything showing above ground, must be down quite close to the beach now. The sea, as you know, has encroached tremendously all along that bit of coast. I should think from the map that it must be about three quarters of a mile from the Globe Inn at the north end of the town. Where are you going to stay? Well, at the Globe Inn, as a matter of fact, said Parkins. I have engaged a room there. I couldn't get in anywhere else. Most of the lodging houses are shut up in winter, it seems, and, as it is, they tell me that the only room of any size I can have is really a double-headed one, and they haven't a corner in which to store the other bed, and so on. But I must have a fairly large room, for I am taking some books down, and I mean to do a bit of work. And though I don't quite fancy having an empty bed, not, not to speak of two, in what I may call for the time being my study, I suppose I can manage to rough it for the short time I shall be there. "'Do you call having an extra bed in your room roughing it, Parkins?' said a bluff person opposite. "'Look here. I shall come down and occupy it for a bit. It'll be company for you.' The professor quivered, but managed to laugh in a courteous manner. <laughs> "'By all means, Roger. There's nothing I should like better. But I'm afraid you would find it rather dull. You don't play golf, do you?' "'No, thank heaven,' said rude Mr. Rogers. "'Well, you see, when I'm not writing I shall most likely be out on the links, and that, as I say, would be rather dull for you, I'm afraid.' "'Oh, I don't know. There's certain to be somebody I know in the place. "'But, of course, if you don't want me, speak the word, Parkins. I shan't be offended. "'The truth, as you always tell us, is never offensive.' "'Parkins was, indeed, scrupulously polite and strictly truthful. "'It is to be feared that Mr. Rogers sometimes practiced upon his knowledge of these characteristics. "'In Parkins' breast there was a conflict now raging, "'which for a moment or two did not allow him to answer. "'That interval being over, he said, 
Well, if you want the exact truth, Rogers, I was considering whether the room I speak of would really be large enough to accommodate us both comfortably, and also whether, mind I shouldn't have said this if you hadn't pressed me, you would not constitute something in the nature of a hindrance to my work. Rogers laughed loudly. Well done, Parkins, he said. It's all right, I promise not to interrupt your work. Don't you disturb yourself about it. No, I won't come if you don't want me, but I thought I should do nicely to keep the ghosts off. Here he might have been seen to wink and to nudge his next neighbor. Parkins might also have been seen to become pink. I beg pardon, Parkins, Rogers continued. I oughtn't to have said that. I forget you don't like levity on these topics. Well, Parkins said, as you have mentioned the matter, I freely own that I do not like careless talk about what you call ghosts. A man in my position, he went on raising his voice a little, cannot, I find, be too careful about appearing to sanction the current beliefs on such subjects. As you know, Rogers, or as you ought to know, for I think I have never concealed my views. No, you certainly have not, old man, said Rogers sotto voce. I hold that any semblance, any appearance of concession to the view that such things might exist is equivalent to a renunciation of all that I hold most sacred, but I am afraid I have not succeeded in securing your attention. Your undivided attention was what Dr. Blimber actually said. Rogers interrupted with every appearance of an earnest desire for accuracy. But I beg your pardon, Perkins. I'm stopping you. No, not at all, said Parkins. I don't remember Blimber. Perhaps he was before my time. But I needn't go on. I'm sure you know what I mean. Yes, yes, said Rogers rather hastily. Just so. We'll go into it fully at Burnstow or somewhere. In repeating the above dialogue, I have tried to give the impression, which it made on me, that Parkins was something of an old woman, rather hen-like, perhaps, in his little ways, totally destitute, alas, of the sense of humor, but at the same time dauntless and sincere in his convictions, and a man deserving of the greatest respect. Whether or not the reader has gathered so much, that was the character which Parkins had. On the following day, Parkins did, as he had hoped, succeed in getting away from his college and in arriving at Burnstow. He was made welcome at the Globe Inn, was safely installed in the large double-bedded room of which we have heard, and was able before retiring to rest to arrange his materials for work in apple pie order upon a commodious table which occupied the outer end of the room and was surrounded on three sides by windows looking out seaward. That is to say, the central window looked straight out to sea and those on the left and right commanded prospects along the shore to the north and south respectively. On the south, you saw the village of Burnstow, on the north, no houses were to be seen, but only the beach and the low cliff backing it. Immediately in front was a strip, not considerable, of rough grass, dotted with old anchors, capstans, and so forth. Then a broad path, then the beach. Whatever may have been the original distance between the Globe Inn and the sea, not more than sixty yards now separated them. The rest of the population of the inn was, of course, a golfing one, and included few elements that call for a special description. The most conspicuous figure was perhaps that of an ancien militaire, secretary of a London club and possessed of a voice of incredible strength and of views of a pronouncedly Protestant type. These were apt to find utterance after his attendance upon the ministrations of the vicar, an estimable man with inclinations toward a picturesque ritual which he gallantly kept down as far as he could out of deference to East Anglian tradition. Professor Parkins, one of whose principal characteristics was pluck, spent the greater part of the day following his arrival at Burnstow in what he had called improving his game in company with this Colonel Wilson, and during the afternoon, whether the process of improvement were to blame or not, I'm not sure, the Colonel's demeanor assumed a coloring so lurid that even Parkins jibbed at the thought of walking home with him from the links. 
He determined, after a short and furtive look at that bristling mustache and those incarnadined features, that it would be wiser to allow the influences of tea and tobacco to do what they could with the colonel before the dinner hour should render a meeting inevitable. I might walk home tonight along the beach, he reflected. Yes, and take a look. There will be light enough for that, at the ruins of which Disney was talking. I don't exactly know where they are, by the way, but I expect I can hardly help stumbling on them. This he accomplished, I may say, in the most literal sense, for in picking his way from the links to the shingle beach, his foot caught, partly in a gorse root and partly in a biggish stone, and over he went. When he got up and surveyed his surroundings, he found himself in a patch of somewhat broken ground covered with small depressions and mounds. These latter, when he came to examine them, proved to be simply masses of flints embedded in mortar and grown over with turf. He must, he quite rightly concluded, be on the side of the preceptory he had promised to look at. It seemed not unlikely to reward the spade of the explorer. Enough of the foundations was probably left at no great depth to throw a good deal of light on the general plan. He remembered vaguely that the Templars, to whom this site had belonged, were in the habit of building round churches, and he thought a particular series of the humps or mounds near him did appear to be arranged in something of a circular form. Few people can resist the temptation to try a little amateur research in a department quite outside their own, if only for the satisfaction of showing how successful they would have been had they only taken it up seriously. Our professor, however, if he felt something of this mean desire, was also truly anxious to oblige Mr. Disney, so he paced with care the circular area he had noticed and wrote down its rough dimensions in his pocketbook. Then he proceeded to examine an oblong eminence which lay east of the center of the circle and seemed to his thinking likely to be the base of a platform or altar. At one end of it, the northern, a patch of the turf was gone, removed by some other boy or other creature. It might, he thought, be as well to probe the soil here for evidences of masonry, and he took out his knife and began scraping away the earth. And now followed another little discovery. A portion of soil fell inward as he scraped and disclosed a small cavity. He lighted one match after another to help him see of what nature the hole was, but the wind was too strong for them all. By tapping and scratching the sides with his knife, however, he was able to make out that it must be an artificial hole in masonry. It was rectangular, and the sides, top and bottom, if not actually plastered, were smooth and regular. Of course, it was empty. No. As he withdrew the knife, he heard a metallic clink, and when he introduced his hand, it met with a cylindrical object lying on the floor of the hole. Naturally enough, he picked it up, and when he brought it into the light, now fast fading, he could see that it, too, was of man's making. A metal tube about four inches long, and evidently of some considerable age. By the time Parkins had made sure that there was nothing else in this odd receptacle, it was too late and too dark for him to think of undertaking any further search. What he had done had proved so unexpectedly interesting that he determined to sacrifice a little more of the daylight on the morrow to archaeology. The object, which he now had safe in his pocket, was bound to be of some slight value, at least, he felt sure. Bleak and solemn was the view on which he took a last look before starting homeward. A faint yellow light in the west showed the links, on which a few figures moving towards the clubhouse were still visible. The squat Martello Tower, the lights of Aldsey Village, the pale ribbon of sands intersected at intervals by black wooden groinings, the dim and murmuring sea. The wind was bitter from the north, but was at his back when he set out for the globe. He quickly rattled and clashed through the shingle and gained the sand upon which, but for the groinings which had to be got over every few yards, the going was both good and quiet. 
One last look behind to measure the distance he had made since leaving the ruined Templar's church showed him a prospect of company on his walk in the shape of a rather indistinct personage, who seemed to be making great efforts to catch up with him, but made little, if any, progress. I mean that there was an appearance of running about his movements, but that the distance between him and Parkins did not seem materially to lessen. So, at least Parkins thought, and decided that he almost certainly did not know him, and that it would be absurd to wait until he came up. For all that, company, he began to think, would really be very welcome on that lonely shore, if only you could choose your companion. In his unenlightened days, he had read of meetings in such places which even now would hardly bear thinking of. He went on thinking of them, however, until he reached home, and particularly of one which catches most people's fancy at some time of their childhood. Now I saw in my dream that Christian had gone but a very little way when he saw a foul fiend coming over the field to meet him. What should I do now, he thought, if I looked back and caught sight of a black figure sharply defined against the yellow sky, and saw that it had horns and wings? I wonder whether I should stand or run for it. Luckily, the gentleman behind is not of that kind, and he seems to be about as far off now as when I saw him first. Well, at this rate, he won't get his dinner as soon as I shall, and, dear me, it's within a quarter of the hour of the time now. I must run. Parkins had, in fact, very little time for dressing. When he met the colonel at dinner, peace, or as much of her as that gentleman can manage, reigned once more in the military bosom, nor was she put to flight in the hours of bridge that followed dinner, for Parkins was a more than respectable player. When, therefore, he retired towards twelve o'clock, he felt that he had spent his evening in quite a satisfactory way, and that, even for so long as a fortnight or three weeks, life at the Globe would be supportable under similar conditions. Especially, thought he, if I go on improving my game. As he went along the passages, he met the boots of the Globe, who stopped and said, "'Beg your pardon, sir, but as I was a-brushing your coat just now, there was something fell out of your pocket. I put it on your chest of drawers, sir, in your room, sir. A piece of a pipe or something of that, sir. Thank you, sir. You'll find it on your chest of drawers, sir. Yes, sir. Good night, sir.' The speech served to remind Parkins of his little discovery of that afternoon. It was with some considerable curiosity that he turned it over by the light of his candles. It was of bronze, he now saw, and was shaped very much after the manner of the modern dog whistle. In fact, it was, yes, certainly it was, actually no more nor less than a whistle. He put it to his lips, but it was quite full of a fine caked-up sand or earth which would not yield to knocking, but must be loosened with a knife. Tidy as ever in his habits, Parkins cleared out the earth onto a piece of paper and took the ladder to the window to empty it out. The night was clear and bright, as he saw when he had opened the casement, and he stopped for an instant to look at the sea and note a belated wanderer stationed on the shore in front of the inn. Then he shut the window, a little surprised at the late hours people kept at Burnstow, and took his whistle to the light again. Why, surely there were marks on it, and not merely marks, but letters. A very little rubbing rendered the deeply cut inscription quite legible, but the professor had to confess, after some earnest thought, that the meaning of it was as obscure to him as the writing on the wall to Belshazzar. There were legends both on the front and on the back of the whistle. The one read thus, Fla fur bis flee. The other, Quis est este qui venit. I ought to be able to make it out, he thought, but I suppose I am a little rusty in my Latin. When I come to think of it, I don't believe I even know the word for a whistle. The long one does seem simple enough. It, it ought to be... Who is this who is coming? Well, the best way to find out is evidently to whistle for him. He blew tentatively and stopped suddenly, startled and yet pleased at the note he had elicited. 
It had a quality of infinite distance in it, and soft as it was, he somehow felt it must be audible for miles round. It was a sound, too, that seemed to have the power, which many scents possess, of forming pictures in the brain. He saw quite clearly for a moment a vision of a wide, dark expanse at night, with a fresh wind blowing, and in the midst a lonely figure. How employed he could not tell. Perhaps he would have seen more had not the picture been broken by the sudden surge of a gust of wind against his casement, so sudden that it made him look up, just in time to see the white glint of a seabird's wing somewhere outside the dark panes. The sound of the whistle had so fascinated him that he could not help trying it once more, this time more boldly. The note was a little, if at all, louder than before, and repetition broke the illusion. No picture followed, as he half hoped it might. But what is this? Goodness, what force the wind can get up in a few minutes. What a tremendous gust. There, I knew that window fastening was of no use. Ah, I thought so. Both candles out. It's enough to tear the room to pieces. The first thing was to get the window shut. While you might count twenty, Parkins was struggling with the small casement and felt almost as if he were pushing back a sturdy burglar, so strong was the pressure. It slackened all at once, and the window banged to and latched itself. Now, to relight the candles and see what damage, if any, had been done. No, nothing seemed amiss. No glass, even, was broken in the casement. But the noise had evidently roused at least one member of the household. The colonel was to be heard stumping in his stockinged feet on the floor above and growling. Quickly as it had risen, the wind did not fall at once. On it went, moaning and rushing past the house, at times rising to a cry so desolate that, as Parkins disinterestedly said, it might have made fanciful people feel quite uncomfortable. Even the unimaginative, he thought, after a quarter of an hour, might be happier without it. Whether it was the wind or the excitement of golf or of the researches in the preceptory that kept Parkins awake, he was not sure. Awake he remained, in any case, long enough to fancy, as I am afraid I often do myself under such conditions, that he was the victim of all manner of fatal disorders. He would lie, counting the beats of his heart, convinced that it was going to stop work every moment and would entertain grave suspicions of his lungs, brain, liver, etc., suspicions which he was sure would be dispelled by the return of daylight, but which, until then, refused to be put aside. He found a little vicarious comfort in the idea that someone else was in the same boat. A near neighbor, in the darkness it was not easy to tell his direction, was tossing and rustling in his bed, too. The next stage was that Parkins shut his eyes and determined to give sleep every chance. Here again, overexcitement asserted itself in another form, that of making pictures. Experto crede, pictures do come to the closed eyes of one trying to sleep and are often so little to his taste that he must open his eyes and disperse them. Parkins' experience on this occasion was a very distressing one, he found that the picture which presented itself to him was continuous. When he opened his eyes, of course, it went, but when he shut them once more, it framed itself afresh and acted itself out again, neither quicker nor slower than before. What he saw was this. A long stretch of shore, shingle edged by sand and intersected at short intervals with black groins running down to the water, a scene, in fact, so like that of his afternoon's walk that, in the absence of any landmark, it could not be distinguished therefrom. The light was obscure, conveying an impression of gathering storm, late winter evening, and slight cold rain. On this bleak stage at first, no actor was visible. Then, in the distance, a bobbing black object appeared. 
A moment more, and it was a man running, jumping, clambering over the groins, and every few seconds looking eagerly back. The nearer he came, the more obvious it was that he was not only anxious, but even terribly frightened, though his face was not to be distinguished. He was, moreover, almost at the end of his strength. On he came, each successive obstacle seemed to cause him more difficulty than the last. Will he get over this next one? thought Parkins. It seemed a little higher than the others. Yes, half climbing, half throwing himself, he did get over, and fell all in a heap on the other side, the side nearest to the spectator. There, as if really unable to get up again, he remained crouching under the groin, looking up in an attitude of painful anxiety. And that is the end of part one of the story. If you enjoy the show and want to help support it, feel free to join me on Patreon or pick up an audiobook I've got out. One of the ones by William Meikle would be really good since I'm sure he would appreciate the help as well. Please go and get vaccinated for anything you are available to get. If you see a bigot out and about and doing a bigotry, insult them in the most childish way possible. And always remember that the most important step a person can take is always the next one. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next week. Special thanks to all my patrons. Robert Biddle, brand new patron, welcome. A. Smith, but not just A. Smith, THE Smith. Billy, J.R., Michaela, Lauren Maines, John McDonough, David Ricker, Amber Vale, Steve Meyer, Andrew Buchanan, Samantha Hickey, May Lynn, Marco Van Putin, Ineptus Astartes, Matthias Hansen, and Eric Braun. Thank you and all my patrons so much for your support. It is what allows me to keep doing my stupid little show, which I very much enjoy doing. Thank you.